Good evening, and welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Midweek Bible Study. I'm Derek Glover, the preacher of the Monroe Church of Christ, and uh, we're glad you can join us. I hope that you're doing well this evening, and uh, if you're watching this live, welcome to share this, leave a comment, uh, subscribe on our YouTube channel if you, if you so choose, uh, or check back with us regularly. If you're on our website watching this, please explore that site. There's a lot of things there to, to take a look at, to listen to. And very soon, hopefully, uh, as we approach fall, we'll be building out a video resource library with other classes and class material for all ages that you might utilize in your own study, in your own congregation, or in a, a home Bible study setting. And uh, we look forward to, to providing that for you. We are looking at uh, how we got the Bible. That has been the study of the last several weeks, and we're going to continue that uh, this evening as well. Last week, we, we talked some about the developments in the Catholic Church, the, the, the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church, and the, um, the way that impacted the Bible and its transitions and translations. And we talked about the Latin Vulgate, uh, the Latin translation of Scripture that was accomplished by Jerome. And uh, so we're going to talk a little more about what's going on during that period of time and bring that forward closer to our modern day. And as we do that, understand that some of these, thing, these things were going on during some of the times we've already discussed. And we're going to talk a lot about the, the Roman Catholic Church this evening. And I, I want to say something up front so you understand. Um, I know there may be those of you watching this who, who are Catholic, uh, have many friends who, who are part of the Catholic Church. Uh, wonderful people. Uh, I think that most people would understand that there are some parts of their history that are not as favorable. Uh, there are some pretty ugly things that occur in the history of, the, of the, the Roman Catholic Church. And that's really true of a lot of different groups. It's true of a lot of countries and, and nations and, and even and just communities. So I want to help you to understand something. You know, I'm an American. Um, I understand the history of our country. There have been some bad decisions we've made as a country. There have been some pretty ugly moments in our history. I have no part of that uh, in terms of my own actions, but I do accept that it is a part of our history. And I hope that you understand the same is true when we look at the Catholic Church. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, impose any sort of judgment on my Roman Catholic friends and their faith because of this history. Uh, but we do want to be honest about it and acknowledge it and look at it in the context of how it impacted us getting the Bible, the 66 books that we have today. It comes through that history. So I'm not going to talk about this history in a disparaging way. I just want to do it in an informative way and, uh, and, and help us to understand how through God's providence these things came to be. So a lot of things are going on during the times we've already discussed. Again, Constantine, uh, the emperor of Rome, in an effort to consolidate political power and to hold the empire together, makes Christianity the official state religion, the official religion of the empire. Now, he himself is not a Christian. Uh, he becomes a Christian perhaps late in life, maybe a deathbed type situation. That seems to be the best guess of history. But he was not uh, someone who was terribly interested in the doctrine of, of the church or in, in the scripture itself, he was interested in maintaining power through unity in the faith. And, and so 
we have to kind of understand and accept that, that as he calls together councils to deal with doctrinal issues or, or questions are posed, his interest is not in getting it right. His interest is in getting it all in agreement. And so that begins to develop some of the doctrines of, of Catholicism and develops Catholicism. But let's take one more step back and take us from the time of Christ and really the time of the apostles in the book of Acts, uh, what's recorded there in their history on forward. The church develops and grows primarily in Jewish communities initially. And they had the synagogue system. In scripture, when we see a gathering of people, we see a word that is used to describe that gathering, ecclesia, uh, it, it, the church. Really, that word literally just means a gathering of people. You could have an ecclesia of Christians. You could have one of a political party. Anytime a group gets together, that's what the word is used to describe, the ecclesia. Um, and, and that occurred in the synagogue setting. So in kind of the, the community meeting place, uh, that would be the synagogue, the meeting place of that community where the church would gather in those early days. And it was very much community-based. And so as it de begins to develop, you have the, um, the development of leadership within congregations. Um, elders are, are, you know, we appoint them today in our, in our churches, particularly if you're from the Churches of Christ, we appoint them. Elders were selected, people were selected to lead in certain ways and capacities. But uh, that begins to change as Christianity begins to spread. Uh, Christianity spread to places that were not yet ready or had not yet come to understand the concept of this synagogue community-based church. Um, you think of it like the way that, and we've seen this in the last 20 or so years, we've gone to other countries in an effort to try and alleviate either threat or human rights uh, abuses, and we've tried to liberate people and give them the right to vote and help them to establish democracy. And we have discovered, uh, and this is repeated throughout history, that there are parts of the world that are not ready for democracy. Uh, they get the opportunity to vote and then they elect the very people they just tried to throw out. Look at Russia, uh, the former Soviet Union. Uh, they had a um, kind of a soft revolution, you might say, in the late 80s and early 90s as the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, democracy begins to take root and just a couple of generations, really one generation later, and who holds power in this country? Uh, someone who is a part of the very group that was thrown out. Uh, Vladimir Putin was part of the, he was a, a communist, a member of the Communist Party, a high-ranking official in the KGB, and here he is. He is the ruler of this country that that was given democracy and they went right back to what they, they had thrown out. Uh, we see that in Afghanistan. We're seeing that especially right now as the consideration is on the table to move our troops out. We fought to liberate these people and to do away with, uh, you know, ostensibly a place where terrorism was being cultivated uh, and used against us. And who's in charge? The very people that we took out of power when we got there. That's true all over the world. It happens on a regular basis. Um, democracy is spread, liberation occurs, revolution, and then the very people that are kicked out get voted back in. So we see that there are communities and places in the world that aren't ready for certain ways of thinking. It is not conceptually a part of their culture. This is also what happened with the church as it began to spread throughout the known world. 
there were parts of the world that didn't have a concept of the community-based synagogue-style congregation. And so when people would gather, they believed that, you know, all, all are created equal, but some were more equal than others. So when a group would gather, they would say, well, who among us is, you know, the greatest? And that person would rise. And, and it wasn't so much that they were uh, a chief elder, uh, as the Bible might say, but they, they gave their approval. Nothing happened without their say-so. And uh, eventually, this idea begins to continue to grow. And Constantine, as he is evolving in his use of the church to consolidate power, begins to build a bureaucracy out of this, which mirrors very closely the bureaucracy of the Roman Empire itself. You have the emperor, you have a pope, uh, intended to be the, uh, the voice of, uh, really, the, the essence of Christ on earth, um, the, the voice of the church, the ultimate authority. But how does that develop? Well, when you have a gathering of people, a local church, you might say, or a local congregation, uh, then someone rises to be the leader of that group. And then as, as Constantine is gathering groups of them together, when, when groups of them get together, what do they do? They decide who's the chief among them. And then the chief among those larger groups get together. And that's how you end up with something that looks radically different from what the church started as, this community-based, synagogue-centric congregation, uh, ecclesia, gathering of people. You see that, and it, it took 200 years, a couple of hundred years, two, 300 years, and they've got something that looks radically different because of the influences of Rome and the cultural influences of the place that the church has spread to. And so as it spreads and this bureaucracy develops and changes, that's how you end up with priests and with uh, archbishops and then arch archbishops and cardinals. And you end up with this whole system, this hierarchy, this governance of the entire church. So as that continues to grow and over the centuries, the Catholic church becomes the governing force, not just religiously, but also politically because uh, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, which has its roots in Constantine's uh, use of it, outlives the Roman Empire. It outlives uh, Rome as the superpower, and as other countries and nations develop and grow, uh, they continue to have this religious affiliation. The Catholic Church is the church. Uh, by the way, the word Catholic uh, means universal church. It means all believers everywhere. Uh, we don't think of it that way because we think of the Catholic church as a proper noun, the Roman Catholic church. That's what we mean when we say that. But in terms of the language, Catholic just means all Christians everywhere, everyone who believes. Can you think, if you're from, if you're from our faith background, the churches of Christ, can you think of another group that has that same sort of mentality? Uh, in our history, the churches of Christ uh, and even the, the Christian churches, independent Christian churches, have a history of that way of thinking. The term Church of Christ, when it was originally put forward by people like Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell and, and in use amongst that movement in you know, 19th century in the United States, um, it was meant to describe a universal unity of all believers. Today, it, for most people, represents a brand name, uh, a denomination. And we try to shy away from that idea. But as much as we struggle helping people to understand that the churches of Christ 
in its history and its design were to be a gathering of believers everywhere, so too the Catholic Church has that struggle. And we have that struggle in understanding that word and the usage of it. But we generally mean the Roman Catholic Church. So a hierarchy develops that mirrors kind of the governance of Rome itself. Rome eventually falls out of power and other countries take, uh, take various pieces of hegemony uh, into the future and into the subsequent centuries. But maintaining a presence through all of that is what has been constructed as the Roman Catholic Church. And they have a lot of power. They have a lot of power both religiously, politically, culturally, and they use it. They use that power. The Bible itself during this time, and again, we have the Latin Vulgate, and it has been decreed that it is the only acceptable translation, and it was for quite a while, by the way. Uh, still really is the official uh, Bible of the Catholic Church, though they've made some changes to some of their doctrine, uh, particularly as it pertains to how uh, strict they are with the use of Latin scripture in their services. Um, they've changed some of that in, in the Vatican too, but the Bible in this time is pretty well locked down, and I mean literally locked down. They set uh, through their various councils and debates, and they, they finally settled on a certain number of books. Um, we have 66. That's ultimately what they had too, but there were others in there. We've talked about the Apocrypha already, but there are deuterocanonical books that are a part of that as well but they lock it down. They say, this is it. These are the scriptures. This is what we have. And not only that, but here's the language it's in. And that's the only one. And not only that, but here's how it's interpreted. And here's the doctrines associated with it. Things like transubstantiation, things like um, the purgatory and praying for, for souls that have, uh, for people that have, have died and for their souls and praying them out of that punishment and into eternity in heaven. Um, and, and that, as they continue to try and lock that down and maintain order, some ugly things develop because the church doesn't take kindly to people disagreeing and they force people out and even go so far as to have uh, the, the Inquisition. And we know in history that this is a time when they were seeking out and purging the heretics from the church, sometimes with the use of deadly force. And you can read countless stories of that sort of thing happening. People who were trying to uh, take a stand for something they believed to be incorrect or inappropriate and were killed for it. This goes on for about a thousand years. For about a thousand years, the, the Roman Catholic Church is the church. And it locks down the Bible and it locks down the language, interpretation, and implementation of Scripture. And it pretty well stays that way until 1348. Something happened in 1348. Um, it was, and this is very timely because of what we've just been through, though this certainly was far more serious. The Black Death or the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague, uh, was a serious pandemic that swept over uh, much of the known world, particularly Europe in some places killed up to 70% of the population. I mean, can you imagine uh, the death and the carnage around you watching so many die? And in the midst of all that was a young man named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, you, he, you may never have heard his name, but he is so important in the story. And I told you, we're getting into some, 
kind of adventure stories, things that would make good movies. Uh, John Wycliffe is one of those stories. He had survived the bubonic plague, and he was at Oxford. And while at Oxford, he was having a tough time with his faith because he had seen the death around him. And the town he was in uh, had lost about 70% of its people. It had gone from something like 15,000 to like 3,000 people left that had survived. And Wycliffe is wrestling with God and he's struggling with his faith and trying to understand who God is and where he is. And he begins to read scripture. He begins to read scripture. And by the way, uh, when we talk about the Bible being locked down, and I said literally, uh, yes, the Bible was chained to the pulpit of, of your local church. Ye, Bibles were not readily available for just anyone to have, and they weren't allowed to have them. Only the priests could have it. Only the church could have it. Only they could read it. Only they could interpret it. By the way, uh, even if you got your hands on a Bible, it was probably going to be in Latin, which you probably couldn't read. And even if it had been in English, in this time, you probably couldn't have read it anyway because most people were illiterate. In fact, a good number of the priests themselves were illiterate. They only knew the sounds. They knew how to speak and remember the words they were reading, but they couldn't really read Latin. So that's how locked down the scripture was. It was even falling out of relevancy linguistically and the Vulgate itself wasn't a particularly great translation by today's standards, but that's what they had. And so John Wycliffe is reading and studying and becoming angry because he's reading scripture for himself and he is looking around him and seeing the things that he disagrees with. He's saying, what I'm reading doesn't line up with what our church is teaching. And so he's studying at Oxford, but as you study through, eventually you start teaching, right? We, we, in, in graduate schools and in, uh, in institutions of higher learning, as you're working on master's degrees and doctorates, oftentimes you will end up teaching and lecturing as a part of that. And so he's talking to his students about these things, church doctrine, in particular the doctrine of transubstantiation. Remember how we talked uh, last time about some of these items, uh, these elements of the worship were considered far too sacred for common people. Scripture was one of them. The other was communion, the Eucharist, the, um, the, the bread and the wine. You, not everybody got that. Not everybody got to partake of it. Only if you were a member in good standing and only if you approached the front and the priest put it into your mouth, you couldn't even touch them. Uh, that, that's changed some. You, you can touch the bread now. They'll hand you the bread but not the wine, and you've got to take it right then. You that there's a, a doctrine that developed uh, among, uh, around the, the communion called transubstantiation, that when you take that bread, it literally becomes the body of Christ in your mouth because the scripture says that when you eat of this, you eat of my body, and when you drink of this, you drink of my blood. And so they said, well, if that's true, well, the, the Bible says what it says, so this must do this. When you take it, it becomes the body of Christ. You're literally ingesting the flesh of Christ through some miraculous supernatural means or the blood through some miraculous means. And Wycliffe says, that doesn't seem right. And he begins to speak against this particular doctrine. He attacked also the doctrine of the um, eternal virginity of Mary. You may not be familiar with this, but you know, they looked at scripture and said, well, Mary was a, a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. So she was a virgin, this immaculate conception. 
but if she was a virgin, then you know, she had to have always been a virgin. Uh, and her mother had to have been a virgin. And, and so there's this whole doctrine that has arisen around Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her eternal virginity. He attacked that doctrine as well. And Wycliffe during this time is pretty well protected. As the church begins to hear of his statements against their doctrines, he's fairly well protected, even physically so, by the walls at Oxford. Also, because this is the time of the plague, uh, the church, the, the Catholic church ha has lost a number of people too, including uh, their enforcers, their, their army. They had an army, by the way, uh, and they did not have the manpower to go after Wycliffe. So they couldn't get to him during this time. Um, he eventually finds himself uh, teaching at Balliol College, and he continues to attack church practices there. He particularly took issue with things like indulgences. You may have heard or read about that. This was where uh, you go to confession, because that's, a, an, again, another Catholic tradition, that you have to go and confess your sins. So you have to go to the priest, and you have to tell them all the bad things you've done, and they tell you how to get forgiveness for it. Say a certain number of prayers, do a certain number of things, give a certain amount of money, and that became one of the methods. Uh, understand that the Roman Catholic Church accumulated a lot of wealth and power, and the priests and the higher-ups in the church became extremely wealthy and powerful. All of the money was in the church. There were priests that were wealthier than some of the heads of state in some of these countries, wealthier than kings and landowners. They were the elite of their time because they had this power and they had this, this force behind them in their history. And so we have Wycliffe at, at Balliol College continuing to attack these practices such as my loved one died. Uh, well, they had sins in their life, and so they're going to purgatory where they pay for their sin for a little while. It's not heaven and it's not hell. It's an in-between. They're going to be punished for their sins, and then they can go to heaven. Well, if you pray for them enough, you can get them out early. But if you have money, you can pay someone to pray for them for you and get them out faster. That happened. Wycliffe attacks this idea as well. Even paying for the priesthood became a practice that was in fairly wide use. Uh, you, you, if you wanted to get into the priesthood, and why would you get into the priesthood? Well, as I said, that's where the money and the power was. So people want to get into the priesthood because it's a lucrative career, and if you want a good assignment, and if you want to move up quickly, you got to pay. There were atheists in the priesthood during this time. There were a lot of pretty ugly things that happened and ugly things that went on. And John Wycliffe, for his preaching against it, was named an enemy of the church. Now, where his, he had been protected by the lack of numbers of the church guard, where he'd been protected by the walls of Oxford, where he had been uh, a little bit protected by the circumstance, he no longer has that protection. And by this time, his king... King Richard is gone. He is not in country. He is uh, attending to the Crusades. And so Wycliffe is now in a vulnerable position. By the way, during this time, there were other myths and stories and legends that developed. Uh, one that we know very well, it's been a part of popular culture in our, in our time, about a man who um, was an enemy of the powers of his day and the elite of his day, 
who was considered an enemy of of them because of his acts of kindness toward the poor, that he was uh, taking and threatening the power and the riches of the wealthy and of the, of the governing authorities to help care for those in communities that were less fortunate. We call him Robin Hood, Robin the Hood. Uh, he was a mythical and legendary uh, figure, a kind of a folk hero. And many, many stories were written, um, probably not a real person, but uh, that kind of mythos is, is kind of reflected in John Wycliffe because here he was advocating for a return of the power and the authority and the understanding of Scripture to the people uh, and was declared an enemy of the church for it. Uh, by this time, the establishment of Oxford could no longer hold out and help him. They wanted him to go away. And so they sent him away to take the heat off of them. They don't want to be harboring an enemy of the church. So he went to a place called Luttersworth. And in 1375, he set up a church in Luttersworth. And while there, he continued to preach and teach uh, these things that he had been doing. And he began to take scripture, take the Bible, and translate sections of it from the Latin into English, uh, into his English into his language, into the language of the community. Now, he didn't translate the whole Bible, and he didn't make it available, okay? So this is, that doesn't happen for a little while longer. A couple more hundred years have to pass before that starts happening. But he does begin translating sections, and he would translate these sections, he would give them to his students. He would translate these sections and give them to people and ask them to make copies and copies and copies and carry them forward. That was how they could get this out. And it was never the whole Bible. It was just sections of Scripture. Uh, and, and some of this would take up to 18 months for one person, if they worked really hard at it, to, to transcribe and copy by hand these sections of Scripture that Wycliffe had translated. And so you have these people traveling around carrying these sections of translated Scripture completely against church rules, church law, church doctrine. And many of them were captured. And many of them were killed because of it. Because, see, Rome had power, and they had spies everywhere, and they had agents everywhere who would tell on you, who were out to get you, and they would report back to the church. Hey, and why? Because there was something in it for them, because it was a lucrative thing to, to spy and be an agent of Rome, and they worked to stop this act. They worked to stop the translation and the proliferation of Scripture. They wanted to lock it down. They wanted to have control of it. Only a, few, um, only a few translations from Wycliffe have survived, and there were only a few in circulation when he died in 1384. The spies and agents of Rome worked hard to stop it, and this band of people that would carry out these, these transcriptions and proliferations uh, they carried with them as their mantra, Romans 8.31, God is for us, who can be against us? And with such courage and bravery, they sought to expand the language and reach of God's word to the common people. It is the first time in history, the first time that the Bible is translated into the language of the common people uh, or of the people of the area. Because up until this point, it has never been available in the language, since it was written, in the language that people spoke. 
uh, because it was written in Hebrew. And when, once that was gathered together and put together, no one spoke Hebrew. Then it was in Greek. And once that was all put together, nobody spoke Greek. So they put it in Latin. And even by the time they got that done, hardly anybody spoke Latin. So for the first time, we have our canon in part being translated into something that could be read by the average person uh, and understood, even though if we got a copy of it, we couldn't read it because we don't read Old English. Uh, this is, this is, our language changes, okay? Uh, and so we wouldn't understand it, but this is the first time. The Catholic Church even had a, a term for these folks who listened to Wycliffe and followed him and, and did the, the, this bidding of his. They called them lollards. Lollards, that's a word that doesn't mean anything to us because, again, that's an old English term, but it meant uneducated, ignorant, stupid, foolish, simpletons. That's how you know that you're winning a fight when the other side starts calling names because in a debate, when someone cannot respond to you with a reasonable argument, they will resort to name-calling. We see it all the time in political debates. Name-calling is a surefire sign that, uh, that, that you're winning if the other side is doing it. So they, they had this word, lollards. And in fact, the people who were being called that kind of took it as a badge of honor. This is very similar to what happened you know, about four, four or five years ago when Donald Trump was running, running for president, right? And you remember the, the other candidate uh, referred to uh, his supporters as deplorables. And I don't want to make this too political, but uh, that word was used to describe a segment of our population, deplorables. And some of those supporters began uh, referring to themselves as deplorables, um, uh, as kind of a badge of honor to say that, yeah, we certainly are, and this is who we support. And the same thing happened as the Catholics tried to, to um, hurt the reputations of these people by calling them lollards, and they said, well, yes, we're, we're lollards. Wycliffe never released a Bible in English. It was a long time before that would happen. But I want to ask you a question, and this goes to a broader discussion of the importance of Scripture and how we look at our Bibles in this period of time, hundreds of years will go by where no one has a complete copy of the Bible in English. They might have bits and pieces of it thanks to the work of Wycliffe, his teaching and his translating. What happened to those people in those hundreds of years? Many people lived and died having never possessed a full copy of the canon in a language they could read. So what happened to those who didn't have the Bible in this time? Were they lost because they didn't have all of it? Because they couldn't know some of the things that we know by reading our scripture? I don't believe that's so. I believe that those people were saved by the light that they had. And that's a phrase, by the way, used by Alexander Campbell. For those of us in the Churches of Christ, that name means a lot. He's a big part of our history and the history of the American Restoration Movement. And he said, you will be saved by walking in the light that you have, not lost because of the light you don't have. So they were, I believe, saved because they walked in the light that they had. And that's an important thing to remember about Scripture. Um, there have been times in our history, and when we get a little bit too in the weeds talking about the, well, the importance of Scripture, the hey, I believe in the authority of Scripture. I believe God's providence has given me this collection of writings, these 66 books. I believe the work of, 
of inspired writers produced it, and I believe the work of people moved by the Holy Spirit to get it into my hands brought it here. I believe God is all throughout it, and I believe in that story that it tells about a redeeming power in Christ's blood. But it is what points us to Christ. It is the story that points us to Christ. That's what saves us, Jesus. It's not the words on the page. They simply illuminate what we must understand who God's son is. And so sometimes we get a little too focused on it. It's all about the scripture, book, chapter, verse, right? And I I love that. I believe that. I'm a big proponent of the authority of God's word and of scripture. But we have to understand that having that is a relatively new thing. It's relatively recent. And it begs the question, are we are we just lucky that we have all of it? We have every bit of it exactly right and we can know everything now and we can be saved. And those that didn't have it, well, I guess that was too bad for them. Is that what we think? Are we arrogant enough to think that we just happen to live in a time where we got all of it? We have it and we have it right. As much as I believe in the authority of scripture, as much as I believe in what it teaches, and as much as I believe that it points the way to Christ and he is what saves me by his death, and my faith in him, I cannot say that there have been generations, centuries of lost souls simply because they didn't have those words available to them. I believe that there will be people in heaven who are saved by the grace of God through the blood of Christ because they understood enough and believed and accepted and walked in the light that they had. And I think having that perspective puts scripture in a a particular perspective for us it keeps it in the right place a road map that points us to jesus that's what the bible is for the agents of rome were everywhere and they sought to get at uh, john wycliffe they hated him they legitimately hated this man and they wanted to destroy him how much do they want to destroy him well let me tell you john wycliffe died as i said in uh 1384. 41 years later, 41 years later, they put him on trial. They put him on trial posthumously. They dug up his bones from where he was buried. Now think about this. He was so hated by the Roman Catholic Church, they exhumed his body, brought his bones, his remains, into a a court sat them there and held a trial and convicted him of heresy. They took his bones, they burned them, crushed them, and scattered them in the river as a heretic because he was so hated. John Wycliffe, in his frustration and wrestling with God and doubting, opened up the Bible and it opened up his world. And it's so often in today's world that people agree on something or believe in something, but no one will stand up for that thing. And they sit back and they let, it, they let someone else do the dirty work. Uh, it's a shame. It's a shame that we have so many people believing so strongly in what is right that will not stand up for it. John Wycliffe stood up. John Wycliffe's life was pain and trouble because he believed that the word of God, the words of God in scripture, belonged in the hands of people that could read them, 
understand them and believe them. And he was not alone. And he influenced others. In fact, a young man named Jan Hus or John Hus. That's who we'll talk about next week. So we go from Wycliffe to this John Huss, and we're going to see how Wycliffe planted the seeds that would lead to the next generation pursuing this same end. We've got to get the word back to the people. We've got to unlock and unchain the scriptures so that we can spread the word, so that we can attempt to find and divine the truth of what the scripture illuminates to us. They were fighting corruption. They were fighting elitism. They were fighting a restrictive church. And I'm thankful that a lot of problems uh, in the Roman Catholic Church have been fixed. They've got a lot of problems left to go, but we love them just, just the same. Uh, those who, who practice as a part of that group, and, and we offer no judgment based on these things, but this is part of history. And we have to acknowledge that at a particular time, just a couple of hundred years after the time of Christ, uh, some things took a different turn. And people like John Wycliffe, and we'll learn next week, John Huss, were doing some things to bring them back. And their actions directly lead to what we call the Protestant Reformation. And we're going to get to that in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hope that this has been beneficial to you, and I hope you'll join us next time as we continue looking at how we got the Bible. Have a great night.